Mary shades her eyes with one trembling hand and arches her neck, looking up at the cross. The sun is beating down on them. She swats at a fly who has the nerve to bother her at such a wrenching moment. She looks again, her eyes slowly tracing the form of her son. She squints, begging her eyes to focus, to see him more clearly now while his chest still rises and falls. Each breath grows a little more shallow. I wonder if he has her eyes, if she can see herself in the shape of his. I wonder if their irises are the same shade of deep honey brown, as if the two are standing before a mirror when they look in each other's eyes. I wonder if Mary notices how his brow furrows in a lopsided line when he speaks to them. If she recognizes how there is still a gentleness to the curve of his fingers, even in his pain on the cross. There on the dusty hill, I imagine Mary ponders these things, the the intimate details of this flesh of her flesh, the beautiful story told through DNA. She can't linger there for too long, though. Jesus begins to speak. They can tell he's nearly gone, but the words come softly, clearly. Woman, He begins, here is your son. He can barely nod, but he is adamant. He turns his gaze to the disciple, the one he especially loves. Here is your mother. Setting aside lineage and genetics, He gives them to one another, one more gift. It is astonishing, the care he offers as he gives up his life. Or it would be, except that this was how he so thoroughly lived, constantly creating kin, forever weaving people together in love. So often we hear about how Jesus is deserted on this last terrible day, how his friends scatter. And yes, most of them do. Most of the disciples run and hide and betray him, hoping to save their own skins in the shadows, or or maybe they just have no idea how to show up, how to care for him in this awfulness. But not all of them have taken off. They are here, keeping vigil at the cross with his mother. 
Mary Magdalene, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and this unnamed disciple who Jesus loves dearly. They're here together, holding each other up, loving him as best they can. Jesus dies as he lives, making kin. His mother is there, yes, but the others, they are family he has created. Slowly, lovingly, laboriously, he has knit them together, one with another and with him, in ways both surreal and utterly mundane. Breaking bread, finding plenty when there had been next to none, healing, laying hands when no one else would draw near calling out his friends and being called out by them and reconciling, always reconciling, serving, washing feet, embracing, being held, even anointed. This is how he has lived with them over years. He has stitched them all into each other's lives, taking strangers and creating kin. And here on the cross, Jesus asks them to do so again. He asks them to keep living this love, to carry this kinship forward beyond him. This happens still, you know, family forged in heartbreak. It can seem impossible that such blessing can emerge from these depths. And yet, last Thanksgiving, my family was visiting some dear friends back east. I had gone down into an unfinished part of their basement looking for some ingredient or other that we needed for the feast we were preparing. The cinder block walls were covered with shelves which were in turn filled with boxes. I padded barefoot on the cold concrete floor scanning. Camping gear Christmas ornaments, where were the extra baking supplies? And then suddenly I stopped, I stood still. My eyes, now wide, had fallen upon a clear plastic box, inside of which I had caught a glimpse of cornflower blue cloth with small yellow elephants on it. I inhaled sharply, closing my eyes for a long while, and then I looked again. Sure enough, stepping closer, I saw it all. I was overcome by the striking tenderness of long-held familiarity. The yellow elephants on blue, they, they covered tiny, footy pajamas. They had been my sons, as had most of what filled this box. My son, Fritz, had died suddenly when he was 40 days 
old. We had held on to his clothes at first. Eventually we used them for his brother who followed. But then what? We wondered. I didn't want to cling to them, but just giving them to goodwill didn't seem right either. In time, I thought of these dear friends who were getting ready to welcome their first baby. Was it weird asking them if they would take our dead son's baby clothes? Maybe, but they didn't flinch. So we boxed up all these onesies and mailed them across the country. And then I didn't think much more about it, not until I was standing there in their basement. Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. Friends, behold your siblings, your grandparents, your kin. Beloved, behold. In that moment, I saw how much these dear souls had been holding me, holding all my family all these years. Standing in their cold basement, I saw how thoroughly they had taken us into their home, taking in not just the joy we share, not just the revelry and the song, but also welcoming the heartbreak, the long-range sorrow, these burdens that cannot be borne alone. Sometimes it can be hard to know, hard to trust, but for once the evidence was right there before me. These friends had taken us into their home. They held us there still. This is the way of the cross. It is humbling and necessary. Mary Oliver puts it this way, all my life, and it has not come to any more than this, beauty and terror. We are called to live both together. We gather on this day, wretched as it is, to retrace these steps, not only to remember, not only to repent. We also join together on this night to step into this shocking beauty, the staggering grace of receiving one another, of being given to one another, this beauty in the midst of all that is terror and heartbreak, and death. This is how Jesus formed and led his people all those years ago. It's how he forms us still. Friends, we are made for each other. This is the heart-wrenching gift of Good Friday. Here is our God, who even in death is speaking grace into being, 
recreating us as kin. May it be so.